I don't feel any loving kindness for myself. Only pity or self-criticism. How can I get the feeling toward myself? This is not an uncommon problem. In fact, it's um, far more common than one would expect it to be everywhere. There are many different ways of trying to overcome this problem. The first way is to remember all the good things about oneself and never mind all the bad things. It's useless to criticize oneself. It's useless to blame oneself. When one criticizes oneself and blames oneself, one does exactly the same thing with others. The mind becomes geared towards criticism and blame. It doesn't matter whom we're criticizing or blaming. It's the action of the mind which counts. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't know where our faults are or our difficulties. But what's the use of blaming ourselves for that? It's much more productive to know that human nature is half and half. We are born with six roots, three wholesome and three unwholesome. The three unwholesome are hate, greed, and delusion. And you can look at them as sort of headings. Hate, everything that we reject, greed, everything that we crave for, delusion, because we don't know absolute truth yet. But we also have the three opposite roads. We have generosity and love and wisdom. Being born with six, who's to blame? Everybody gets born with them. No exception. All we can do with them is recognize them within ourselves. And then, as we do, try to cultivate the three wholesome ones. And by trying to cultivate the three wholesome ones, obviously they'll grow. Cultivation makes things grow. And as they grow, the others diminish. And that's all we're doing here. Everything that we're doing here is geared towards that. The cultivation and growth of the three wholesome roots which we all carry within us so that the three unwholesome ones will get smaller and smaller and finally wither away. So it's useless to blame ourselves for that which is human nature. The only thing that's useful is to see that we can transcend that basic human nature. So in order to find some feeling for oneself, remembering all the nice things one's ever done, having given presents, being caring and concerned about others, 
anything at all that one has ever done. In Pali, that's called dananusanti, mindfulness of one's own generosity. One should remember the good things about oneself. And as we learn to remember the good things about ourselves, we also learn to see the good things in others. It's the same action again. When we can see the good things in ourselves, it's much easier to see the good things in others. We will still know that they have also been born with the six roots. But what is there to worry about? There are six billion of us, and they're all born with the six roots. So why worry about mine or anybody else's six roots? The only thing that makes any sense at all is to cultivate the three wholesome roots within oneself. Now, as we look at those roots, it also needs to be said. Greed and hate are the outcome of delusion. So, we can't really tackle delusion until we have tackled more of our love and generosity. Because as we purify, it becomes easier and easier to see our basic and underlying mistaken view, which are, which is the cause for the uh, unwholesomeness. Having a good feeling about oneself is a skill like any other, a skill that can be learned. We just have to practice it. Any skill that we have ever accomplished, we have practiced. This is one, just like any other skill. There's another way we can attempt to get a good feeling towards ourselves. First way, to look at the good things we've done. The second way is, if there's anyone in our life whom we really have a loving feeling for, to bring up that loving feeling for that person and then transfer that same feeling to oneself. There's no difference between us. Love is love, people are people. So as we diminish the gap between ourselves and others and between those people which we consider lovable and those we don't consider lovable, we also learn to love ourselves better. It's also an incentive, an incentive to do one's best. With that incentive, to give one's best to whatever task is on hand, we must reduce or lose the syndrome of trying to find the result of what we've done. Having done one's best is all that's necessary. And one's best may be one thing one day, and one thing another day. 
it may have been more effort at one time and less at another. But if one has that real incentive to do one's best, that already brings satisfaction into the heart. And one realizes that there is a lovable quality within oneself. Blaming oneself is useless, criticizing oneself is useless. It doesn't even change the non-lovable qualities. On the contrary, having a non-lovable quality within oneself and then blaming it or criticizing it, we've got two or three non-lovable qualities. We multiply them which is certainly not helpful. So we can use two ways which can be useful. First one, thinking of the good things we've done. Second one, using the love we have for a specific person to transfer that to ourselves. If the feeling does not arise it is certainly helpful to think it. Thinking is also a sense contact, and all sense contacts create feeling, whether we know it or not. And eventually, if we've thought it often enough, we will become aware of the feeling. So thinking it is also a way that leads us towards the feeling. Certainly much better than thinking the opposite. Once my passions ruled, now that there's more calm and equanimity, I find I cannot love in the same way. Melodrama is gone, but so is my passion. It's probably quite helpful that melodrama is gone, isn't it? Well, there is an important question embedded in this particular um, question here. Namely, is it really equanimity? Or is it indifference? Equanimity is considered to be the highest of all emotions. I was speaking about the four supreme emotions this morning, but I did not get as far as equanimity, only mentioned the first two. But equanimity is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's even-mindedness, and it arises out of insight. And if it's really equanimity, which one can't know now from this question, if it's really equanimity, it's a feeling which is completely imbued with love and compassion, but 
it does not have the up and down of passion. And it doesn't have the clinging of passion, and it doesn't have the demands of passion. In other words, it's peaceful, whereas passion is usually rather obstructive to peace. But equanimity carries with it a feeling of warmth, a feeling of connectedness, togetherness, feeling of embracing the other person and being very much interested in the other person but not wanting to have the other person. If that is what's happening, it should be a very pleasant experience. From the question one might assume that the experience is not that pleasant. Well then, one can assume, rightly or wrongly, I may be wrong, but one can assume that having had too many passions which were not very conducive to peacefulness, the person has turned around and has, instead of equanimity, been practicing indifference, which many people do as a shield, as a protection against their own passions. It's like building a wall around oneself. And obviously that wall protects one from having very unpleasant or very strong passions. But at the same time, it also protects one, or rather shields one from having loving kindness and compassion. None of the feelings get through. Neither the pleasant nor the unpleasant. Neither those that are too strong for comfort, nor those that we need to actually practice. A person who has practiced indifference feels like an observer, a bystander, not a participant. Is usually able to understand everything through the mind but can't get in there and feel. So it's also not satisfying. Neither the passions are satisfying nor the indifference is satisfying. Equanimity has as its far enemy upset and uh, aggravation, excitement, but as its near enemy, it has indifference, because it appears to be similar. It looks as if the person who has practiced indifference is actually calm and collected, but in reality, they've built this wall so that they won't be touched. 
What if we don't allow ourselves to be touched? We are only living on half of our potential because we have heart and mind. And if we live only with the mind, we're losing out on the other half. One might even say on the better half. But we often don't know that because of the non-purified aspect of our emotions. But obviously, having both, we need to harmonize both. We need to cultivate both. And as I mentioned already this morning, usually we have cultivated the mind aspect. It's so important just even to make a living, just even to get along in this world, so that we have cultivated that to a great extent and have lacked the cultivation of the other aspect. If we only use one of the two, it's like limping on one foot. Painful, uncomfortable, and no progress. We need both. And then we can really step forward. So, if this is equanimity, it should feel very pleasant. Equanimity feels really wonderful. If it isn't, if it's indifference, it doesn't feel good at all. It feels as if one is bereft of something. Something is missing. And very often, when people do uh, practice indifference, they think what is missing is another person, as if another person could change us to the extent where we would feel completely fulfilled. That mistaken view is very prevalent. That isn't missing at all. What we need to do when there is indifference ruling, then we need to recognize it. We need to recognize it and break through that wall we've built ourselves and work more with loving kindness and compassion. Think it, practice it, use it, take every opportunity in meditation and outside of meditation. Please talk about silence and noble silence. Maybe one should be silent about silence. Frankly, I don't know what to say about silence and noble silence. The question isn't very um, explicit. I don't know exactly what the question is. 
what comes to mind is that if there's outer silence, it's easier to have inner silence. That's why when we want to meditate, we try to go to quiet places like this one. It's an ideal silence here. There's no traffic, no people. There's not even, I haven't even heard any airplanes. It's quite marvelous in this day and age. Outer silence does not guarantee inner silence. Even in outer silence, the mind shatters. It tells stories. But, eventually, if we don't feed it, if we don't constantly give it something new to think about, it will calm down. This is only the first day. It does calm down. Here, in a place like this, although there are still a lot of sense contacts, the temptations to think about things are not as enormous as they are in the city. So the mind doesn't get so much input except the one that we do ourselves. So it's easier to calm down. Outer silence is nothing but a crutch supposed to be a help so that inner silence can eventuate. Inner silence can be equated to peacefulness. Peacefulness only comes about when there's wishlessness. This is one of the experiences that we have when the meditation becomes concentrated. The less wishes we have, the easier it is to become peaceful. Every mind, time the mind says something that it wants, we are giving rise to a lack within ourselves which creates displeasure, no peacefulness. So if we can recognize that wishlessness brings peacefulness, we might be able to drop a few of our wishes and see whether it works. The Buddha did not want anyone to believe anything that he taught but he urged people to try it out. Trying it out and seeing whether it works. If it does work, one knows. Much easier than trying to believe anything. I don't know whether that was actually the question, but that's all that comes to mind. <laughs> How to stop asking why questions? 
Well, I don't know whether we should uh, stop asking why questions. It depends what these why questions are all about. If the why question concerns skeptical doubt, why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here? Why am I not um, going to the movies? Then, of course, yes, we should stop that. A skeptical doubt is very damaging to our practice. But if there is a question in the mind that says, for instance, why am I having enmity? Why don't I feel love? That can be helpful. That kind of question, if it brings up an answer, the answer should be the next question. Like, for instance, if we are asking ourselves, why don't I feel loving towards the people I'm close to? And the answer that comes up is, because my mother didn't love me enough. The next question is, why should that be a reason for not practicing love now? The next answer is the next question. There is a bottom line to that questioning. But, and I will give you the bottom line, but it's useless to use it without having come to it oneself. The bottom line is ego. There is no other answer. But one's got to find that oneself. Only then will it have an impact. Everything else is only theoretical. So it can be very useful to ask why questions. It depends which way they go. Are they strictly on about one's own dislike or one's own uh, resentments or rejection of what one is doing? Or are they actually a question of trying to find out why is this within me? Why is this happening? That can be very um, insightful. Insight is a word in the Buddhist terminology which has a specific meaning. And yet, we all also gain insights on the way, which we could call minor insights into ourselves, which pave the way to the major insights. The major insights are of universal character. In Pali, the major insights are called Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness. Well, we don't always get immediate insights into those universal characteristics. So any insight that we gain on the way into ourselves 
it's extremely helpful and paves the way for the path. So why can be very useful. Is it necessary to have an emotional feeling when practicing loving-kindness meditation? Well, it's certainly preferable. I have the intention, but at this early stage of practice, it seems mostly thought rather than feeling. I have been attempting metta practice for two to three months. Well, some people find it quite easy to have that feeling of lovingness and sharing and caring. Other people find it difficult. Some people it takes a while. Some people can do it quickly. Certainly it's better to have the emotional feeling, but as I said already, even thinking gets us there. If we think it often enough and mean it when we think it, eventually we have to connect the head with the heart. Only then do we have the basis from which we can really practice the spiritual path. But in the beginning, we often have to just make do with what we can do already. And that's all right, too. The intention is important, that's mentioned. And again, if the feeling isn't arising, one can try using a person that one really loves and using that person, the feeling for that person and then transferring that feeling to oneself and others. It can be helpful. But on the whole, just to practice loving-kindness meditation and the loving-kindness feeling will eventually bring the results. Sometimes it is easier to practice with people we like. It's not so challenging and not so difficult to overcome our um, contrary emotions. So if it's difficult to experience any kind of uh, loving-kindness, use the people that you like anyway and try to see whether something comes up. It's a feeling of warmth, it's a feeling of connectedness, a feeling of non-separation, of leaning towards the person, of giving oneself to another person, giving oneself with one's emotional feeling, not trying to get anything, not trying to keep anything, not trying to have any response, 
It's just giving. The more we can do that, the easier it is to meditate. Because we have to give ourselves to the meditation subject. We have to completely immerse ourselves in the meditation subject. We cannot immerse ourselves if we're holding ourselves back. So it's a giving and a letting go of self-cherishing. This is also the reason why I have said, and I'm repeating now, please start every meditation with giving yourself loving-kindness. It only needs to take a moment or two. Do it the best way you can. If you think it, that's fine. Just think of something good about yourself, contentment, any kind of good feeling about yourself, possibly gratitude for your, the opportunity you have here, anything at all that gives you a nice, warm feeling about yourself. At the beginning of each meditation, only for yourself, not for other people. It helps the meditation enormously, and it also helps this particular problem, that when it's only thinking, eventually it turns into feeling. Sometimes when I meditate, an intuitive idea comes up which is helpful. Of course, when this happens, I'm not concentrating on the breast. Is this okay? If the intuitive idea is an insightful idea, it's certainly all right. But if the intuitive idea is only something that one is going to do on in the worldly affairs, how one can handle one's affairs better, it's much better to drop it. But if it's insightful, if it gives one a new slant on oneself, if it gives one a new perspective, a deeper perspective, then it's fine. And then one should anchor it in the mind so that one can use it afterwards. And not that it's lost completely and one tries to resurrect it and can't find it. So we need to distinguish between that which will help us on the spiritual path and usually has universal validity and that which is strictly personal and has only the connection to the worldly life. If it's only the latter, it's best dropped as quickly as possible.
please elaborate on the nature of ambivalence and ways to prevent it from ruling my mind. Also, what is the relationship between ambivalence and doubt? Well, I think they are very closely connected. I think they are the same thing. If we are ambivalent, then we are doubting whether we should do this or that. So, it's our fifth hindrance, skeptical doubt. The Buddha compared it to being in the desert without provisions, without a road map, going around in circles, and in the end being overrun by bandits. It's a very um, destructive a sort of um, thought process because we destroy our initiative and we destroy the urgency to practice by trying to figure out should it be done this way or that. And if we do that, it would be very difficult to have any progress. Progress is not something that we can measure, but it's certainly something that we will experience. Eventually, one day, we do experience that we have changed. Other people might even mention it, but that's not important. We ourselves experience it. And having experienced that we have changed, we know it's from practice. There's no other way to do it. It's the only way to change. And on both levels, calm and insight, change takes place. So if we have, as is mentioned here, the problem of doubt, the problem of ambivalence. Practice anyway, and it will all change. It's not helpful to deal with it again and again, because even dealing with it will be ambivalent. It's quite amazing and interesting to see in oneself how these changes take place. They are very subtle and they are not a great happening, but they are subtle and small but regular changes which eventually accumulate to the point where we can recognize them quite easily. I'm used to following my breath in chest or belly, find it very difficult to feel at nostrils 
How important is it to stay with the nostrils? There's something else that the pencil gave out, so I can't read it. We have to let it go at the at the nostrils. How important is it to stay with the nostrils? Probably pencil broke off. Well, if someone is used to watching the breath in the chest or at the stomach and can't make the change to the nostrils, it's better to stay with the old habit. Particularly if that person becomes concentrated there. If there's no concentration, what's the use of doing it? There are many other ways of becoming concentrated. It doesn't have to be the breath. We have to understand that all these are methods. And methods are just methods whatever they are. And there aren't any better or worse methods. The only thing that we can say about them is that it works for us. The Buddha taught 40 different methods. Obviously, we can't have 40 methods in a week. We already have three we're going to have another one. And that will have to do, because it's going to become much too confusing. However, if someone is having real problems with the breath and can't feel it properly, this is what it says, it's difficult to feel at the nostrils. And it is not concentrated either at the chest or at the belly, but it remains a thinking process. And the person is very visual. It can be very helpful to use color casida. Now, the reason that the rise and fall of the abdomen does usually not become very concentrated. It's because one remains the observer and not the participant. Being the observer, one is separated and the mind does not become still. It observes and tells what it observes. And I've already mentioned this, and I'll mention it again. If we're in the ocean, and there are huge waves, and we're standing under the wave, all we see is the water of the wave. Only when the ocean comes down, and is completely tranquil, can we see into the depth of the ocean. 
the same with our own mind. As long as there is the discussion going on in the mind, this is rising, this is falling, this is impermanent, this is touching, this is this, this is that, the depth of it all eludes us. There has to become, and has to become, the experiencer without the the one that is telling the story. The experiencer in the end knows because he has experienced. With the rise and fall of the abdomen, that's extremely difficult. The chest is a little easier. The chest is also rise and fall. <clears throat> but the breath is more apparent. So one can actually fall into the breath if one knows that one isn't supposed to say anything about it. This is the danger in this practice to constantly say something about it. In order to become calm, we've got to stop saying something about it. We've got to experience it. Calm, serenity, tranquility is not saying anything. It's a state of mind. It's not an understanding or an observation. It's a state of mind. And unless we get a fair bit of calm, we're not going to get a fair bit of insight. There's just too much going on within so that we can go to the absolute depth of ourselves. The Buddha's own practice before he became enlightened, when he was still the Bodhisattva. And having perfected them, he then gained the insight from them. And proclaimed them in his enlightenment statement of the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So unless the person who's asking this has really full concentration, maybe a different method might be much more helpful. One is color casino, another one is loving kindness meditation, and it is sometimes difficult for some people to feel the breath at the nostrils because they're not used to that. Then if it's only possible to feel it in the chest, only to pay attention to the breath itself as we feel it in the chest and not so much to the movement of the chest. It's possible to let oneself fall in to the movement of the breath 
fairly easily. But the movement of the chest is far more gross and much more difficult to become really um, one with it. There are three questions on this, and two have been crossed out, so I imagine that these two are all taken care of then. I hope I'm right. The third one is left open. What are the benefits of the practice of not eating after the noon meal? Didn't you get anything to eat this evening? Might it be appropriate to practice this way during this retreat? When meditation becomes well established, especially in an intensive retreat, there usually is less um, craving for food. There's also less craving for sleep. The mind, which is well concentrated, compensates the body. If one has never done this before, has never either had a retreat before, or never left out a meal before, I would not recommend that because the mind will revert to I'm hungry I wonder what they had for dinner it's a long time till breakfast I wouldn't recommend that because the mind is already busy enough with everything else and we don't have to give it another cause for thinking if one has however done this sort of thing before and has had practice in either fasting or just reducing the intake of food, then it can be helpful. The helpfulness lies in the fact that the body feels lighter. It doesn't have so much, um, doesn't have the feeling so much of being weighed down And as the body feels lighter, it makes less demands. And as it makes less demands, it becomes a little easier to meditate. So if it's a new thing, I would not recommend it. If it's something one has done before, yes, why not? Can be helpful. In order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
think of all the good things that are happening in your own life. And experience the feeling of gratitude in your heart. For the abundance of material comfort your opportunity to practice meditation the beauty of your surroundings the people you associate with Whatever comes to your mind that you can be grateful for, the home you live in, the skills you have, the food you eat, the strength and health of your body. Look at all these many things and be grateful. Let gratitude arise in your heart. Let it fill you that you feel as if your heart is overflowing with gratitude. There's a feeling of humility that goes along with gratitude. A feeling of being blessed. Now put your attention on the person sitting nearest you in this hall and extend your gratitude to that person 
for their companionship in this course, their support of your practice. Let the person feel how grateful you are to him or her that he or she is here. Helping you to practice. Now think of your parents, whether they are still alive or not, and let your heart full of gratitude reach out to them, filling them with your heartfelt thanks for all they've done for you, especially at a time when you couldn't do anything for yourself. At that feeling of gratitude, which is imbued with love, fill the hearts of your parents. Think of your nearest and dearest people, those that you might live with. Be grateful to them, that they're part of your life. That they help you, care for you, are interested in you. Let them feel your gratitude. that they are there for you. That they are concerned with your well-being. Let the gratitude from your heart reach out to their heart.
Now think of all your good friends and be utterly grateful to them for their friendship. That they're part of your life, concerned about your well-being. They have that connection with you. Let them feel your gratitude. And reach out to their hearts, full of love, full of caring, Think of the people whom you meet in your daily life. Whoever comes to mind. Neighbors, people at work, in the offices, in shops, on public transport. Teachers, students, patients, customers, whoever it is whom you meet, let them all arise before your mind's eye and then be utterly grateful to them that they're part and parcel of your life, making your livelihood possible. connected with you, concerned about you. Be thankful that these people are there supporting your life. Let them feel this gratitude. Let it flow from your heart to their hearts. Embrace them with it.
Now think of any person whom you find difficult. Difficult to love. And be utterly grateful to that person for the learning experience that he or she is providing for you. Which otherwise wouldn't happen. This gratitude will help to forgive and forget will bring about a lessening of this thing, a togetherness and connectedness to that person. Think of all the people who make our lives possible. First, they are the farmers who grow our food. Let gratitude arise in your heart. that they are doing that in order to support us. Let this gratitude reach out to as many farmers as you can think of, near and far. Think of the people who've built our houses, manufactured our clothing, are transporting the goods to the shops, the salespeople who are selling them to us. Think of doctors and nurses who help us when we're sick. Teachers who have taught us. People who keep our roads in order. Think of the many things you use every day and how there are always people involved who make it possible. 
Let gratitude reach out from your heart, full of love and connectedness to all these people who make our lives possible. Put your attention back on yourself and feel how the gratitude fills your heart, <clears throat> how it extends outward to the surroundings around you. How it fills you with contentment and appreciation of the goodness in your life and appreciation of all that which supports it. Let the feeling of gratitude, which is loving and humble, fill you from head to toe. Creating contentment and joy. May people everywhere have gratitude in their hearts. 